0: I think we all know that statistics can be misused to prove just about anything. I think there was a time when a speaker or author or podcaster, maybe a news correspondent, would point to a statistic and listeners would receive their data as both factual and valid. But that time, at least I believe, is past today. Uh, When someone incorporates statistical data into their presentation, there is, and probably rightfully so, just a tinge of skepticism, a little little voice, kind of inside of the back of our head, this is, hang on, I had better fact-check that. Still, I I think there is a place for statistics, at least at a macro level, toward helping us understand human behavior and cultural trends. And I think that's true in the case of Pew Research's most recent data on the subject of prayer. Let me ask you a question. Is America, in your opinion, a praying nation? Let that sink in for just a minute. I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of us would not think of, of Russia as a praying nation or communist China as a praying nation, though no doubt prayer goes on in both of those nations. But as a whole, we wouldn't associate them with prayer. Well, what about America? So it's here, I think a few statistics might actually help. In a recent survey, Pew Research, one of the more attested to research centers in America, discovered an interesting trend. Is America a praying nation? Well, in the year 2014, Pew Research answered that question with an overwhelming yes. Listen to this. In 2014, a whopping 55% of the nation a majority of Americans, indicated that they not only prayed, but they did so on a daily basis. Now that's changed. As of 2021, the number of U.S. adults that pray on a daily basis has dropped to a minority of 45%. Additionally, I think this is important. A full 32% of our American population indicates that they seldom or never pray. Again, statistics don't, don't paint the whole picture, but I think they do. Again, at a macro level, raise a question, a, a personal question, and I'm just going to put it in front of you today. How is your prayer life? So, in our podcast today, I want you to think about something with me. Where, where really does prayer fit into your life? So, I, I know us well enough that. Most would be pretty quick to say, well, hey, you know what? I, I believe in prayer. I think it's important. I think it's essential to, to our faith walk. That's good. And I don't question that sentiment. I, I think we do believe in the power of prayer. That, that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, what does it actually look like in your life today? If you're being honest with someone, would you fit more into that? 55% of Americans who would say, yeah, I, I believe in prayer, but I don't do it. Not not daily. Would you align more with the 32 percent who say, you know, whether I believe in it or not, I really don't do it. My prayer life is seldom to none. Or are you in that 45 percent of our population that includes prayer as a daily part of your life? What does I think about that today as we turn to one of the great prayer chapters of the Bible, Daniel chapter nine and learn from one of the great prayer warriors of all time? Well, let me just tell you that one of the things that really uh, moved me to think about our topic for today is a book I just finished reading. It's titled, Speeches That Changed the World. It's a book written by UK historian Simone Montefiore. And if you know me, you know I love books. I love learning about history. I've read a ton of historical narrative, but this book was different. It it really, um, it really just ins- inspired me, it really did. When you wrote the book, uh, it was Montefiore's goal to curate what he believed to be world-changing speeches, whether spoken by historical giants or relative unknowns. So um, the book contains George Washington's farewell address, September 1797, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg address, November 1863. It has a speech that Mohandas Gandhi delivered in 1930 on the eve of his now famous Salt March. And and though you've probably never heard of her, it contains Aung San Suu Kyi's acceptance speech delivered in 1991 at her acceptance of the Prize for Freedom of Thought. In my opinion, a must read. Now what, what Montefiore reminds us of in his book is the power of the spoken word to change the world. Whether Hitler or Lenin, who used the spoken word to change things for the worst, or Martin Luther King Jr., who used his words for the common good. We all acknowledge that perhaps the most powerful thing on the planet today is not the nuclear bomb, it's not the collective or the World Federation, it's not the government of any country. No, it's the power of words, something that should not surprise us as Christians who carry with us the most powerful word among all. All the words ever spoken or written, namely the scriptures of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word's powerful, but then so is prayer, a type of word spoken or thought in such a word that there is an interplay, which takes place in the spiritual realm between man and God. Prayer itself is a word by which God changes us. So let me, let me ask you something. How did you learn it? How did you learn to pray. I'm going to guess that for many of us, prayer takes us back to our childhood. Maybe it was a parent or grandparent who taught you your first prayers. So somewhere along the way, you may have been introduced to a particular prayer pattern. Maybe you learned the five-finger prayer pattern or the axe pattern. You may have been taught to practice Lexio Divina or how to pray the scriptures. You may have discovered a particular book or collection of prayers that have served you well personally. I, I, myself, I love to pray through, the, through a book that contains old Celtic prayers, uh, beautiful prayers. There's no doubt, but that certain people or teachers or resources have influenced both how we pray and how we understand what prayer is. I was thinking about this back in the 1980s. In fact, to be precise, 1987, 1988. I, actually, I ran into a pastor who, at that time, was having a major impact on how individual Christians as well as Christian churches were going about prayer. I don't know how many of you remember the name Larry Lee, but Larry was a pastor in Rockwall, Texas. He built and centered his ministry around prayer. He had been a student of W.A. Chriswell, uh, the famed pastor of Dallas First Baptist Church. Chriswell, of course, taught the world that the so called secret behind the growth a First Baptist from 6,000 to 20,000 members wasn't a secret at all, but rather the church's emphasis on prayer. When people would come to visit uh, the church, Chriswell, would ask them, do you want to see our boiler room? But most, of course, were like, well, we came here to see your sanctuary. But Chriswell insisted. He says, you know what? Sanctuary is beautiful, but it's what happens in the boiler room that matters. So, So down to the boiler room they would go where 24 hours a day, just, just imagine this, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, volunteers showed up to do nothing but pray. Apart from prayer, Chriswell would say, the church would be nothing. As a Chriswell disciple, Larry Lees, uh, within, a, within a year, set out as a youth pastor on a mission to teach young people the critical importance of prayer as a supernatural act. His youth group of 40 grew to a youth group of over 1,000 within the course of about two years. Lee insisted that youth were hungry to encounter the supernatural, which he found strangely missing in many churches who simply seemed to be going through the motions of being church. In 1987, he wrote his first book on prayer. I'll never forget it. The title of the book, it's old now, but I still recommend it to this day. is a book entitled, Could You Not Tarry?, book centered in the Lord's Prayer, not simply as a prayer to be recited, but as a prayer that actually teaches us what prayer is as much as how to make prayer a daily rhythm and part of our life. By by the way, I feel like I need to say this before I move forward. I'm very much aware that in the 1990s, Larry Lee, along with several prominent megachurch pastors, became subject to critique and investigation. Uh, in the spirit of the Eighth Commandment, I will not bear any false witnesses here. And I don't know that any of us will fully know the whole story behind what led to ultimately the downfall of Larry Lee's ministry. What I do know is this, is how God took such a simple message, Larry Lee's Could You Not Terry book, and, and he did turn that book into a tool toward raising up prayer and people's lives and, and within churches across America. On a personal note, I'll tell you that it was Lee's book on the Lord's Prayer that really got me thinking about a book yet to be written. You know what I'd call it? Not speeches that changed the world, that's Montefiore, but prayers that changed the world. Question, could you list them? Seriously, if I, if I handed you a Bible, And I asked you absent of Google or Alexa to find for me those prayers in its pages that changed the world, those prayers that teach us not only how to pray, but which get to the essence of what prayer itself is all about. What what prayers would you name? I'll give you a minute. Are there prayers that come to mind? I mean, after the Lord's Prayer, which is on all of our lists, what prayers would you lift up as teaching prayers? So listen to this. I tried making a list for myself. I did. I took my Bible and I said, okay, Luke, what would you lift up? What prayers have taught you the most about prayer itself? Here's what I came up with. Are you ready for this? I came up with 47 prayers. I did. That's almost one prayer per week for a year. In fact, I kind of feel like I want to do that. What would happen if for one year a person were to take... One of the great prayers of the Bible and just let God use it to form them because I'm a big believer that that's what happens in prayer. We want prayer to be something that we use to change things or maybe even to change God himself. I've heard people say, Pastor, if I pray really hard, maybe God will fix this or he'll take this away or he'll change this. But is that even what prayer is for? You see, when I, when I studied the great prayers of Scripture, whether, whether Moses' prayers in Exodus or Solomon's prayers, the dedication of the temple or Jonah's pouting prayer, here's what I find in common. All of them point to the idea that prayer is not so much something that we do to make things different as it is something that God does inside of us to make us the same, the same as him. Prayer is a word that God uses to change us. I hope that we can hear that in the prayer that we discover in the ninth chapter of Daniel's narrative, Daniel's prayer. So remember the context with me. As chapter nine begins, we find ourselves at the end of Israel's exile, the years 538 BC, 70 years have passed since Israel was led into captivity through Babylon. Let me say it this way. As chapter 9 begins, Daniel, who was a young boy when this book began, is now in his 70s, wondering if God will allow him to see how this story of captivity will end. Now, here's something I find interesting. Daniel does know that Israel's captivity is coming to an end. Remember how? How does he know? So throughout most of the narrative in this book, Daniel becomes aware of God's actions among men through what? Through dreams and visions. God says, here's what I'm getting ready to do. But this is different. How does Daniel know that the captivity time, that their, their time in Babylon is over? So, so let, me, let me give you one word. The word is Jeremiah, as in the prophet Jeremiah. One of my favorite questions to ask Christians is, is this, is the Old Testament, in, in that era, in the Old Testament, did people have Bibles? So we kind of take it for granted, right? If you don't have a Bible, pretty easy to attain. You go to a bookstore. If all else fails, call 1-800-GIDEONS. But but what about the Old Testament era? So we do know this. The oldest extant manuscript that we today have of the scriptures is the dead sea scrolls these date back to about 150 bc seems like a long time ago but really it's not all that long ago so were there scriptures prior to the dead sea scrolls well we'd say yeah yeah, i think there were how do do we know because archaeologists have dug up pieces of scripture on ostraca or stone clay clay upon which they find the scriptures written. Some ostraca, in fact, date all the way back to 1000 BC. Now that's old, but there's also evidence that there were scriptures prior to that. Where do we find that evidence? What's called out in the scriptures themselves. Deuteronomy 31, for example, describes the book in which Moses wrote down the Torah of God. So here's my point, for 70-year-old Daniel, what did the scriptures look like? He didn't have a Bible like we have. He didn't have pieces of ostraca by which he came to know Jeremiah's message, nor did the common man have access to written scrolls, which would have been in existence by 538 B.C. The common man did not have access, but guess who did? Nobles, kings, and queens, for whom Daniel just happened to work. So here's the scenario. In his old age, Daniel is spending time in the libraries of the king. In this case, the the libraries of Darius, king of Persia. Within the library, Daniel discovers the scrolls of Jeremiah, who is a contemporary prophet living in Jerusalem. As Daniel reads the scrolls, God reveals something to him. Within the scroll of Jeremiah are the words that we associate today with Jeremiah 25. I want you to listen in particular to verses 11 and 12 of this prophecy. The use of the words that Daniel, 70 year old Daniel, would have read. They read as follows The whole land, that is Jerusalem, will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, what does Daniel know? 70 years. It's been 70 years. When I came to this land, as a young boy, I was lost, angry, at times depressed. All of my hopes and dreams, ambitions, had been taken from me. I wondered, what is God doing? But that was then. In these last 70 years, I've watched God do amazing things. I've watched men walk out of burning furnaces alive. I've experienced lions lying down in their den. A supernatural hand holding them at bay. I've watched kings come and go. And more than this, I've watched how God in this time has brought many who were outside of faith into faith. I've seen so much, but now 70 years, 70 years are up and it's time to go back home to Jerusalem. We should have stopped for a minute and let that just kind of sink in. If you're Daniel and the Spirit speak these words into you, what would your response be? Would you be the person who says, well, I'll I'll believe when I see it. Would you be filled with skepticism? Would you be the person with a cynical edge? Seventy years and we're going home. Right. Sure we are. Or would you simply believe them? Because Daniel does. He does because he speaks out of these words, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the scriptures. This prayer of Daniel, it's got a lot in it. Don't panic. We're not going to try to work our way through the whole of the prayer in one swoop. We'd be here a while. But there are three things I I do want you to notice in this prayer. Let it teach you a little bit about prayer. I want you to notice, number one, Daniel's approach toward God. What is his relationship toward God as the prayer begins? Number two, Daniel's posture before God. I think this is important. Then number three, the place of faith. In Daniel's prayer. Again, my emphasis is on prayer as an act of God within each one of us. So here's here's what I like to do. We're only going to read two verses of the prayer, verses three and four, and then we'll walk through these three things that I want you to notice. All right, let's just pray. Lord, just give us your guidance as we read these words, verses three and four. Verses 3 and 4, Daniel 9, quote, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. End quote. That's the verse. Okay, let's start with Daniel's approach to God. What do you notice about it? Allow me to ask a little bit differently. If I were to hand you a black she- blank sheet of paper and ask you to write down all the words that come to your mind as you read the first 11 words of this scripture, what words would you write down? I'm going to read them to you again. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer. What words come to your mind when you when you read that? So I was preparing this podcast. I asked several people, for their feedback, just give me your give me your feedback as you hear those eleven words. Those eleven words. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him in prayer. Here, here's a few of the words that came back to me. Word number one, confident. Daniel's approaching God with confidence, not fear. Confidence. Number two, hopeful. Daniel uses the word seeking here. He's seeking God out. Hopeful after seventy years. Hopeful. After reading the words of Jeremiah. Third word, expectant. Daniel believes that God is getting ready to act. He trusts the words of the prophet Jeremiah. I, I like all three of those words. I like them because at their heart they reflect the fact that Daniel has a personal relationship with God. And don't don't miss that. It's key. In prayer, Daniel's not coming to God as if as if God were some great oz behind a curtain separate from, distant from mankind. Rather, he approaches God as one who's in a relationship with him. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the word that's used here is a highly relational word. The Hebrew reads, I turned my pane, my face towards the Lord. It describes two entities that turn to look deeply into the other's eyes. There's mutuality, there's love. There's relationship. I think this is so significant because it raises a question for me and I hope for you too. And the question is, how do I approach God in prayer? Do I see him as one standing kind of somewhere out there, distant, maybe unknowable? Uh, Or am I living in a deep relationship with him? And I ask because I truly believe that prayer proceeds out of relationship. It's not something we do because we're commanded to But it's about who we are together with Jesus. So this prayer causes me to look at that and to to realize sometimes when I become relationally distant from God, my prayer life dries up. But in relationship, our prayers flow out of our spiritual being as much as air enters and exits our being. So secondly, Daniel's posture is important. It really is. At the same time that Daniel turns his face toward God, he does so, I'm speaking posturally, wearing three things, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, I could park here for a while because there's a lot to teach in each one of those words, but I I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Here's what I want to observe. Most of the time when we read read these words, fasting, sackcloth, ashes, we think repentance. That's what we think about. It's not wrong. Here's what is wrong. When we think repentance too often, we associate it with something that we do. In other words, we read these verses and we would say, see, look what God, look at what Daniel's doing. He's repenting. He fasts. He puts on sackcloth. I itch when I hear that word. And he covers himself in ashes, a sign of death. Daniel's repenting. But here, here's what we need to know. Throughout the scriptures, repentance—it's not about what we do. You know why? It's about what God does in us. The term used for repentance in the scriptures, shuv in the Hebrew, metanoia in the Greek, indicate the work of God, in which He turns our hearts towards His heart. Our signs of fasting, sackcloth, and ashes merely reflect that. Each of them, in their own way, represents as does fasting and emptying out of ourselves, the removal of the garments of self that we by nature wear and a literal death to self that's brought about by the spirit's work within us. Here, here's what I love about this. Back to the prayer. What is it? What What is prayer? It's a work by which God turns our hearts towards his heart. It's what he's doing in us. God in prayer is causing our hearts to beat like his. Makes our third note so significant. We want us to notice Daniel's faith as he approaches God in this posture of surrender. Here are the words again. O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. End quote. We want you to stop and think about something. Is there a place in the New Testament where we hear similar words, words that resemble these spoken by Daniel? Is there a scripture that comes to mind? Try this one, Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Do you see the similarity? Daniel, God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Paul, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Notice that in both, the place of faith is front. center we may not always understand what God's doing in our lives we may not understand his timing but faith tells us that we can pray with confidence we can pray with expectation we can pray trusting the heart of Jesus the heart that he has for us so let me close with the same question that we opened up today with as you look at this section of Daniel how's your prayer life do the words hopeful confident expectant do they fit where you find yourself today or are there some things getting in the way of where you would like to be next week i want to pick up another section to daniel's prayer in the meantime my prayer for you is that no matter how you might answer this question god can use what's happening inside of you right now to bring your heart into alignment with his i'm going to ask you please keep me in your prayers i'm keeping you in mind And uh, we'll pick up with Daniel 9 again next week. And until then, have a God-sized week.